Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for October 19th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be taking a look at a bunch of news, including uh, Venom movie rumors, a female Thor film could be in development, Morgan Spurlock has a Simpsons mockumentary that's coming out, and the truth about the snowman. And in the mailbag, we'll answer a question about how studios screen movies for press early and the trend of movie sites publishing spoilers earlier than ever before. Uh, this is Peter Sorata, and joining me on today's podcast are Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? And Chris Evangelista. Hello, everyone. Before we get into this, um, it's, it's, uh, one of our readers uh, wrote to us, Mansar G. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Mansar G. Um, he wrote in yesterday, we were talking about um, the Sicario sequel. Um, and I mentioned that I had, or I think we all mentioned that we had not seen any films from this Italian director, Stefano Salima, Salima, I think it is. Um, he basically wrote in saying that the Italian director is one of, uh, the best crime genre makers. His style is distinct and beautiful. Check out Sabura or, and, uh, ACAB, two films I mentioned yesterday. Um, second season of Romance Criminale is almost a masterpiece in peak Italian television. His most recent work is this Italian mafia crime series called Gamora that builds upon the movie of the same name. Uh, enjoying your podcast. You're missing out on one of the best Italian European directors out there. Um, and uh, thank you for writing in because uh, I, I do think if there's any weak point uh, in, in my filmography, it probably is international film uh, I know Ben has admitted that in the past. Uh, Chris gets to see a lot more international fare than all of us, I think. But even then, none of us have seen uh, the work of Stefano, and he's now on my, my radar. I, I almost watched Gamora, the the Italian TV series, on, I think, Netflix or something. It was I remember I was looking up um, a couple months ago. I was looking up on IMDb. I was looking at, like, what are the highest rated television shows that are currently on tv 
by the IMDb rating just to see if there's like anything not on my radar. And this was one of them, the television adaptation of Gamora. And I almost started watching it. Something else came out on Netflix or whatever. And I lost, you know, my train of thought as often happens. And, um, (laughs) so I think definitely I'm going to check out at very least Gamora and, uh, maybe one of his, uh, movies when I get the chance. Uh, I, I, I do want to expand, my horizons of Italian cinema. And uh, I, I do want to get excited for this Sicario sequel. But let's just jump into the news, guys. Um, in the news, uh, they're making a Venom movie. We know Sony is developing this Venom movie outside of the Spider-Man universe. Uh, Spider-Man's not going to be involved. Uh, we now have rumors suggesting that it may adapt a famous comic book storyline. Ben, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know? Uh, Omega Underground has reported that the Venom movie might end up being an adaptation of Venom Lethal Protector, which is a six-issue limited comic series that first turned Venom from a full-fledged villain into more of an anti-hero. And that seems to be in line with the approach that Sony is taking with these characters. You know, the same thing sort of with Silver and Black, the uh, Silver Sable Black Cat movie that they're developing. These characters that are sort of on the edge of the law, but sort of ultimately teeter onto the correct side of it. But, you know, they have some some criminal paths and stuff like that. Um, there seems to be a little bit of evidence to support this theory. First of all, Lethal Protector takes place, uh, the comic series takes place when Eddie Brock slash Venom uh, agrees with Spider-Man that the two are going to leave each other alone and Eddie moves to San Francisco. And this movie is actually supposed to be filming in San Francisco. Um and uh, ultimately, the father of one of one of Venom's previous victims ends up sort of gathering a, a group of mercenaries and tracking him across the country and trying to get revenge. Um, so that's like the the loose story. Uh, also, sort of uh, providing some evidence for this theory is that the company is casting a bunch of mercenaries. So that may or may not be the jury, which is a the specific group that appears in that Lethal Protector storyline. Uh, they are apparently armored up with some armor that was um, developed based on stolen designs from Tony Stark. So that might be a little MCU connection. And um, yeah, so that's that's basically it. The only other thing that's worth mentioning there is that uh, an official Twitter account has been started for the Venom movie. And in their first tweet, they refer to Venom as being the upcoming film from Sony's Marvel Universe. So now it looks like we can call this thing the SMU instead of the Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe. So it seems like since that's a, you know, it's an official Twitter account, that seems like what the company is now referring to this weird Spider-Man adjacent, Marvel adjacent universe. So so what does this tell us about this movie? I, you know, I thought originally that this is going to be based in space and be kind of like a horror thriller, kind of like The Thing or like, you know, almost like Life, which was another Sony film that people theorized was going to be a backdoor sequel or a backdoor way of doing this Venom movie. Um, but it seems like it's not that. So what what would this be, Ben? If... Um, it seems like in that and I haven't read that comic series, but I've done a little bit of research about it and it looks like uh, Venom teams up with Spider-Man in the comics, which is probably not going to happen in this movie because we know that Spider-Man, Tom Holland, Spider-Man anyway, is not going to be in this film. And I don't think that character is going to show up in any of these movies, at least for the foreseeable future. But in the comics, Venom teams up with Spider-Man and five offspring of the Venom symbiote. 
to sort of face off against this mercenary team. So uh, it still could have those sort of horror-ish elements in there with these, you know, the the symbiote and, and those sort of uh, designs and alien, you know, creatures and stuff that sort of uh, emerge from Venom and, you know, like talking about Carnage and, and characters like that. They look terrifying. So that could be sort of uh, in line with the tone that you're talking about. So just because it takes place in San Francisco and, and features these characters doesn't necessarily mean that the tone is not going to be uh, darker than what we're used to from from these kinds of films. It's so interesting this movie because the casting is all like spot on, and you know actors I want to see in a movie together. But everything else I'm hearing about this movie, including the director and the you know the this rumored story, does not seem like anything I want to see on the big screen. But. Uh, Moving yeah. on, something people do want to see on the big screen is they want to see more female superheroes, and especially from Marvel, who has not given us that. Um, Kevin Feige is doing press for Thor Ragnarok, and he was asked about the possibility of a female Thor movie. Female, like There is a female Thor in the comics. Uh, Chris, you're at the slip for Slash Home. What do we know? Right. So like you said, Kevin Feige is doing a promotion for Thor Ragnarok. And uh, during that promotion, someone asked him if we would ever see the female Thor from the comics in the film. And he didn't exactly commit to the idea, but basically what he said was they're always Marvel is always pulling from the comics for ideas. Basically how they pulled from Planet Hulk for this new Thor Ragnarok for the Hulk subplot. They could always go back and pull from the comics when there was a female Thor who was – it turned out to be Jane Foster, who was played by Natalie Portman in the films. I, I doubt she'd come back for it. I don't know, but uh, that's that's basically where it stands. It's interesting because I think Marvel kind of has this plan. They haven't said this publicly, but this plan to do trilogies. Like they did the Captain America trilogy. They did the Thor trilogy. They are planning this Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy. And they have done an Iron Man trilogy. And beyond that... It, they've kind of uh, are. It seems like the plan is to reboot in much the same way that the comic books reboot these characters, uh, you know, with this female Thor. So I could very much see this thing happening, you know, with, you know, no spoilers from Thor Ragnarok, but we've already seen that trailer from Infinity War with, with Thor, so he somehow survives it. Um, <laughs> uh, but. Um, <laughs> You know, yeah, like Marvel's going to kill off the main lead of their of their movie. But um, (laughs) the uh, I think going into Infinity War, we're going to see a lot of people uh, on the chopping block. We're going to see a lot of devastation and a lot of casualties. And I would I would look at the people that have the trilogies. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like they've completed their arcs. The Captain America is the Iron Man, the the Thors. uh, Those are the people that are probably going to get rebooted when this universe course corrects itself after Avengers four. But that's just my theorizing. Uh, Ben, do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, I'm thinking the exact same thing. Those guys are getting more and more expensive by the day probably. And they've, you know, they've sort of put their time in when it comes to, the Marvel Cinematic Universe thus far, and I think uh, Marvel would be crazy to throw away the brand just because the actor is no longer, uh, you know, financially viable for them. So I think that's a good way for them to keep 
the Thor character around, just give that mantle to a different character. And, you know, we were talking just the other day about a whole female led sort of quasi Avengers movie with all the MCU characters. That would be a really cool addition of female Thor to that group. If, if that, you know, if this female Thor movie happens to uh, make it to screens before that one ultimately maybe does one day. (laughs) Uh, my only hesitation about this is, you know, female Thor might look much like Wonder Woman does with these kind of Amazon women. You know, it's it, it kind of has the same aesthetics. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of wonder if Tessa Thompson's character Valkyrie, who we see in Thor Ragnarok and who is uh, in most of the reviews getting a lot of uh, a lot of people love her portrayal of Valkyrie, if she could be w- the one to take on the hammer. Uh, she's the only one, uh, the only female introduced in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that I could think it would make sense that they've already introduced that could take over that throne. Yeah, that would be really cool. Chris, is yeah. it, any thoughts on this? Uh, I mean, I I would love if Tessa Thompson took it over just because I'm a big fan of hers. And I'm I'm ready for her to become an even bigger star after Ragnarok comes out. So I would definitely be on board with that. I hope everybody that sees Ragnarok, if you haven't already, go see Creed. She is so fantastic in that movie. And uh, if you're not watching Westworld, what? Um, yes. So moving on. Uh, Morgan Spurlock uh, has directed an hour-long Simpsons documentary, mockumentary, in honor of Homer at the Bat. I think this was announced a couple years ago. Uh, ben, what do, we, what do we know about this? Yes. So I don't watch The Simpsons myself, but apparently there's a famous episode that aired, I think, in 1992. It's been like 25 years. You have some uh, amazing gaps of things you have I not know. watched that are culturally, <laughs> culturally like relevant and huge. I know. It's uh, I'm always working on it, man. I'm, uh, You've never seen uh, an episode of The Simpsons? So I think maybe one episode. And I, I watched The Simpsons movie. Uh, because a bunch of my friends went to the theater and I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to stay home. So I went and saw that when it came out in, what, 2007 or something, 10 years ago. Um, but yeah, I just never, I never watched The Simpsons. I don't know what to tell you. I just, it, it, I it, skipped it. Is this the case of like, there's sometimes that something becomes so big and like a thing. And then like, by the time I get to, it, I'm like, you know what? It's already a thing. Like, like I'm so late to this. What's the yeah, point? Yeah. That's definitely, I mean, I think the real answer is my parents probably, I think I remember them saying, you can't watch this show when I was very young and and the show was sort of uh, in its heyday. I don't remember what about it. They were just like, no, you can't watch this. And then so by the time I sort of uh, developed any sort of sense of independence where <laughs> I, I would have decided to seek that out on my own, it, it was like you're saying, it was just too big at that point. It had already been multiple seasons and I, you know, it wasn't as easy to catch up on stuff. And I'm not somebody who typically jumps into a show, you know, five or six seasons in. I, I like to watch everything from the beginning. So I think that probably contributed to it as well. I don't know. Anyway, the, uh, we're getting off topic here. The, the, uh, there's an episode. I, I, wait, actually, before you get going, I just want to yeah. say when I was, I think in middle school, I think this uh, Simpsons started, which proves I'm an old person. And uh, they didn't allow, they banned from my middle school the t-shirts with had Bart Simpson, and he said, "Don't have a cow, man." That that was considered bad. Uh, whenever that was, however many years ago that was, and now like you know, every kid has seen you know South Park, which is 
a hundred times more vulgar and right. <laughs> yet wor- worse than don't have a cow man. But okay, go on. <laughs> so uh, there's this episode called Homer at the Bat uh, in which Homer Simpson sort of teams up with a bunch of um, uh, Major League Baseball players as uh, enacted in The Simpsons. Ken Griffey Jr., Roger Clemens, Wade Boggs. Um, and he Homer ends, ends up joining the uh, like winning MVP of the the title or whatever. And he ends up getting inducted into the actual baseball hall of fame sort of as a joke, um, because of this episode. And, uh, Morgan Spurlock, the filmmaker behind supersize me has directed an hour long mockumentary specifically about that episode. And it's a satire of Ken Burns documentaries, um, specifically a satire of Burns's baseball. And this one, you know, it takes clips of that episode of the Simpsons and intercuts them with baseball historians and sportscasters and, you know, people like Bob Costas and Joe Buck, you know, commentators and stuff like that, as well as uh, talking head interviews with the animated characters within the world of The Simpsons, like comic book guy and stuff like that. So um, it's just an hour long thing. It's called Springfield of Dreams, The Legend of Homer Simpson, and it airs on Sunday, October 22nd, which is this coming Sunday, um, right around the time of the, I think the, the, World Series qualifying games are going on for baseball right now. I don't really follow baseball, so excuse me if that's incorrect. But, uh, but yeah, I think that's that's what's going on. So this Sunday night, you can tune in and and check out this uh, blast from the past sort of uh, fake sports mockumentary from Morgan Spurlock of all people. Okay, this this is weird. First of all, I like The Simpsons. Not that I watch them anymore. I don't think anybody watches them anymore. Um, but they're going to keep on going on and going on uh, because I guess generations that are not my generation are watching them um but i like the simpsons i like morgan spurlock and i I appreciate a lot of the stuff he's doing in television if you've ever seen his cnn show inside man it's fantastic um they announced that he was doing a documentary on the simpsons kind of to celebrate their i don't know not sure how many years they're into the, the simpsons that that seemed exciting to me nothing about this what you just said sounds interesting it sounds horrible like, I don't want to see a mockumentary about The Simpsons based in that world in Ken Burns style from Morgan Spurlock. <laughs> I mean, I certainly am, am going to agree with you because I don't know a damn thing about The Simpsons. But uh, but, yeah, it does sound, you know, taking a step back from my own personal engagement with this series, it does sound especially weird. You would think that. Spurlock would not uh, necessarily be, you know, this seems more like a family guy gag or something, which obviously was, I mean, that show is heavy, heavily influenced by the Simpsons as, so I guess you could say this almost sounds like an early Simpsons gag. Um, that would be, you know, a throwaway joke, not a full hour long thing. And Chris, what do you think? Well, I guess I'm the outlier here in that this sounds like the first Simpsons related thing I've actually want to watch in like 20 years, probably. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, I was I was a huge Simpsons fan as a kid, and I'm one of those people who can like annoyingly just quote it at you know the drop of a hat, all that stuff. But you know, like most people, I stopped watching it around season 92 or whatever they're up <laughs> till now. So, so I, I mean, I haven't watched it in a long time, but I, I remember this episode, the Homer at the Bat episode, and I remember just loving that episode. So this actually sounds kind of intriguing and i also really like ken burns style documentary so i'm kind of interested i don't know if it can it can fill up a full hour that seems like maybe it's pushing it but beyond that i i might actually check this out 
Well, we found the middle of the Venn diagram then. It is Chris. There there you go. <laughs> I think I just hate mockumentaries in general unless they're like a comedy film like, you know, uh, This is Final Tap or something like in, in that vein. Uh, I remember around the the era of them making uh, Star Wars prequels, they, they released on DVD this movie called R2-D2 Beyond the Dome. And it was like a behind the music episode based on R2. It's kind of like I think it's very much in what I'm thinking this this uh, Morgan Spurlock documentary is. And it's horrible. Um, (laughs) It it might be worse than the Ewok movies. So, wow. Yeah, that 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 that, you have to try to get that bad. Um, (laughs) Moving on. Uh there is a movie called The Snowman coming out in theaters this week. Uh, critics saw it, and it is getting uh, just horribly torn apart by critics. And we have now learned that 15% of the script wasn't even filmed. The director is trying to make a defense. Chris, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know? Right. So uh, The Snowman has been in development for a while. because uh, It's based on a book. For, uh, I think it's Norwegian crime thriller and it's been in development for a while. And for a period, Martin Scorsese was even going to direct it, but he eventually moved on. He's, I think he's still listed as an executive producer on this. And, uh, Thomas Alfredson took over. He, and he's the guy who directed, um, let the right one in and Tinker Taylor soldier spy. So he's a really good director, but everyone is saying this film is just very bad. I mean, the UK saw it last week. So the UK critics had their reviews before the US critics and they tore it apart as well. And so it seems like uh, the director is basically doing an apology tour right now before the movie even comes out wide and trying to explain why the film didn't turn out that well. And his statement is basically that uh, by the time they went to shoot, they just were rushed. They were very rushed. And they were so rushed that they ended up not using about 15% of the screenplay. So uh, I don't know. I don't how, know. How do you put together a film with missing 15% of the screenplay? I don't know. It's, uh, he doesn't explain how that happened exactly. He just keeps saying because they were rushed, they, did, they weren't able to shoot that, I guess. But that seems extreme. Yeah, I, I can't think of a time when I've ever heard that as an excuse before. Like... Uh, I mean, that seems like <laughs> something that you would say maybe if you're working on an indie film where you just simply ran out of budget because you've maxed out all your credit cards and whatever, and you sort of have to make do with, you know, a hundred grand or something like that. But this is a movie that stars Michael Fassbender. This is like a major film from a, a big studio. How is that even possible that they just straight up did not film a 10 or 15% of the script? This is insane. <laughs> The, the yeah. only thing I can imagine is during filming, they were they were not making their days and they were strategically cutting things from the script as they were going, knowing that they weren't going. Like, I don't think it was like, oh, we need to still film this 15 percent of the script. Oh, you guys are out. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can't do that. Like, I think uh, while they were not making their days, they probably had a uh, producer or an AD or whatever uh, making these decisions of what to cut. And, uh, oh, they'll make it work in the editing room. Don't worry. Um, but, uh, you know what, as much as this sounds like this, this, this probably is like the worst example of how a filmmaker should answer this kind of question in junkin interviews. But that said, it actually makes me want to see the movie. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I, I agree. All the I was I was pretty much indifferent to this movie, but all the negative buzz has actually made me want to see it more. Like, like I I feel like I have to see how bad this is now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, let's go into the mailbag today. Uh, one of our readers, Paul uh, M, writes in about a thread that uh, critic film critic Scott Weinberg started on Twitter. Uh, the Thor Ragnarok reviews embargo broke today, so a lot of reviews hit the web. And film critic uh, uh, Scott Weinberg uh, started this kind of rant on Twitter, basically complaining about how um, films from like companies like Disney are screen. I'll, I'll read what he says, actually. He said, critics agree. Thor Ragnarok is great. And then he has an asterisk. A few handpicked critics in New York and L.A. Uh, he says, Disney pulls this every Marvel movie. Certain New York and L.A. critics see the movie. Then the embargo is lifted. And then a week later, the critics around the country see it. Uh, so uh, he, he's basically kind of insinuating that Disney handpicks critics in New York and L.A., to that are going to like these movies to see them before the general critics at large see them. Uh, and that's why you never see this negative buzz uh, for the early reviews. Um, I'll start this conversation off by saying that I don't think that's how it, that, I don't think that's the case. Uh, most times at least um, I think a company like Disney usually holds their film junket around a world premiere usually held in New York or L.A., usually L.A., and the days before and after that that per world premiere, well, they have all the actors and the cast and crew together in one place. They go to a, a uh, hotel in the area and hold a press junket where critics from L.A. can come in and, you know, interview the, the stars. I, I interviewed Kevin Feige this time around. Uh, the, people in New York get to screen the film and they'll do phoners with some of the stars and actors and, I mean, uh, and uh, directors. And um, the reason why they don't screen it to, I think, the country at large is because they want to control when the press goes out. So as as much as they have an embargo set for you know today, uh, they want a lot of these newspapers and stuff. They want them to run their reviews the week that the film is coming out because when those reviews come out the week that is coming out, uh, the awareness is higher and more people go to the theater to see it because they are aware that the movie is coming out. Unlike how you are not aware that the snowman is coming out this week. And, um, <laughs> And uh, I think uh, that's the reason why they do it. That they're not like trying to pull a fast one. And um, it should be mentioned that uh, while this movie comes out November 3rd in the U.S., internationally it's coming out next week, starting next week. So I think that's why the the this first embargo broke this week and not like the week of release because the week of release is now international. So we're now a week before the actual release of the film internationally. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on this? Is Disney trying to pull a fast one? I'm interested to hear what Chris thinks about this since he lives in Philadelphia and Peter and I are both in L.A. So, Chris, what do you think? Right. I mean, I don't think there is like a, a, like a conspiracy or anything on Disney's part. I do think not just Disney, just studios in general tend to prefer 
New York and L.A. And as someone who doesn't live in either of those places, it does drive me a little nuts. Like I, I'm based out of Philadelphia, which, you know, Philadelphia is not a small city. It's not like a small town. But as far as movie studios are concerned, Philadelphia might as well not even exist. Like we get we get screenings very, very late, uh, almost all the time. My my Thor screening is next Thursday. <laughs> So, so <laughs> that's a bit so, late. So, so, you, so you get to see it at the same time that international audiences that are paying to see it get to see it. Right, exactly. And th- that does sort of bug me a little. So I can sort of see where he's coming from with this. I mean, I don't think it's a, it's a, uh, like a handpick thing. Like they're only going for the good reviews. I just think as far as studios are concerned, New York and LA are pretty much the be all end all. They're the only people who exist and it doesn't really matter what other, critics think so I, I do think there is some sort of i don't want to use the word bias because that sounds like snobby i don't think it's bias i just think it's just the way it is yeah i think uh you know maybe what might be worth pointing out too is that i think they think that people are going to like this movie which is probably part of the reason that they showed it early too because that tends to happen with studios uh not just disney but any studio that's like really competent in the movie that they have, they'll move up the screening or move up the embargo date or something in order to get the word out there um, and, you know, allow critics to permeate the, you know, social media and all that stuff with uh, what the studio assumes is going to be good buzz because they themselves have reviewed it internally and, and, you know, they like the film and they believe in it and stuff like that. So uh, that could be the case here as well. But I think a lot of it is probably just what Peter was talking about as far as timing with the premiere and then with international dates and stuff too. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's maybe worth considering that they also just really like the movie and think that everyone is going to like it. Um, But yeah, it does, you know, I'm sure being in a, a city that's not LA or New York, it can get tiresome pretty quickly. Yeah. It should also be noted that studios um, often own studio lots here in LA and they have, you know, access to screening rooms where they can do multiple screenings and it doesn't cost as much as renting out a full theater in these other uh, metropolitan uh, cities. Um, So, but I I did want to point out, like Ben, you saw the film this week. Um, So it's not like Disney chose like, Oh, these, you know, this person's going to like it. We'll show it to him and not this person. I think they did all media screenings this week. I, I know people from podcasts that saw it this week in LA. So right. It's, like, it's not like they, um, you know, were selective. I, I think he's being a little, little bit uh, deceptive here. And I, well, yeah. I, and a lot of times I'm on the outside looking in on things like that too, because there are, you know, super early screenings of a lot of different things where they do actually handpick people based on, you know, these people get invited to the junket, these people, um, you know, write for the trades, for example, or something like maybe they'll show it to a very, very small select group. But this that in my experience, anyway, that was not the case with Thor Ragnarok, because like you mentioned, I saw it at like an all media screening where pretty much anyone who wanted to get in could just email the studio. And as long as you work for like a reputable outlet, then you're good to go kind of thing. Yeah. And, and another thing I wanted to talk about is a lot of people are complaining because today, while the embargo broke for reviews, there uh, was some outlets that were publishing spoilers. Um, uh, there's and this is kind of a trend of publishing spoilers early. IndieWire published an article today about what the Thor Ragnarok after credit scenes mean. You know, this is two weeks before the movie hits theaters in the U.S. on November 3rd. 
Um, but of course, one week before it hits internationally. Um, so the question is, who is this article for? Because if only press have seen this movie, who is reading this article about what the after credit scenes mean? Like, who has the questions other than, you know, a select group of press? So allow me to play devil's advocate for a second, Peter. I feel like it's for it would be for you if you didn't run slash film, right? Like based on the way that you've talked about spoilers in the past couple weeks on the podcast, it seems like you would not be uh, opposed to knowing that kind of information beforehand. And I think there are a lot of people out there who just don't really care about, um, you know, being surprised and all that stuff. They just want as much information as possible. And then they're going to judge the movie based on how it executes that, which is sort of in line with what you've been talking about. Um, so I guess it's for them. It does seem a little weird because maybe you would think that you could time it to an article like that to the first day that it becomes viewable by the public at large, whether that's internationally or domestic or whatever. But so right now it's basically just for people who have already seen it, these critics or people who don't care at all about, uh, you know, preserving the theatrical experience. Um, Which by the way, these critics need this article because in my screening, I can tell you like half the critics, my screening left before the after credit scenes happened. And the other half were like, you know, were a mix of, you know, people like me that run uh, or work for geek websites that know what's going on. The other half were like just bewildered at what's going on. (laughs) Um, But uh, I think it's also partly Google. One thing you don't know probably from the outside looking into these movie websites is that when someone reports something first, they're most oftentimes more linked and they're more oftentimes they place higher on the Google search engine when that time comes and people are like third searching like Thor Ragnarok, you know, end credit scenes. I'm sure, you know, this website will place up higher. So they are, I think my, my opinion is they're writing this article for, for an algorithm and not for people. And they're hoping that when this movie hits theaters on November 3rd, that they will now, because they wrote this so long ago, they were the first to, you know, stick their boot in the sand, that they will place highly and they'll get that coveted Google traffic, which is, if you don't know, it's it's like gold. Um, that, that That's my theory. Um, but it's just unfortunate because I feel like a lot of people in the process get spoiled. Chris, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, I'm with you. I, I really think it is just for Google. I also think it, it it's just for clicks in general because, I mean, here we are. We're talking about that they posted it. So you know, a little controversy, quote unquote. I mean, as far as controversy goes, this is not like a big controversial thing. But as far as that goes, it's going to get people talking. It's going to be people on Twitter saying, oh, I can't believe IndieWire spoiled this. And they're going to retweet the article. And that's going to end up getting traffic too. I mean, I think it really just all comes down to traffic, which I mean, that sounds like cavalier and cutthroat, but that's how sites survive. So that's, you know, that's how how they're going to make their money, I guess. So that's how they want to do it. It's just interesting that this conversation is becoming earlier and earlier of these spoilers. We oftentimes do these in credit articles and we Easter egg articles and we try to do it around the day of release so that people seeing the movie that night can find our article um i don't know i just don't know i guess uh, other than my cynical outlook that people are searching 
Um, I mean, I guess Ben could be right. Maybe there could be a lot of Marvel fans that just need to know and uh, haven't found this information on Reddit already and, you know, just want to find out two weeks before they see the movie. But my feeling is there's probably less people like that than in, in like percentage wise than the people at large. I don't know. Uh, I think that's probably true, but then, but think about the type of people that would seek that out. You know, like they're it's it's tough to bringing in the the whole demographics of like everyone who's going to watch the movie because uh, I would say more than half of them have never been on a movie site before. You know, it's just like uh, general audiences in the blandest, you know, the the broadest sense of the term. So um, I think they're they're just catering to what they know is out there. I know the writer of that article. I don't think it was necessarily anything, um, you know, purposefully devious to post it this early. It's, I think it's probably oh, yeah, just boils yeah. down to what Chris said, where it's like, you know, it, it's tough out there right now for, for online publishers. And you got to do what you can to stay in the red, or I mean, in the black, basically. Yeah. I, I, I do want to say that, that, the, that this has been going on for a while with clickbaity websites that you expect this from. I think the reason why a lot of people got up in arms on Twitter today because of this is it's from a good website and a good writer. And, uh, you know, it's just unexpected on that uh, and that website and that writer. Um, and I think, you know, people don't go to that site for those kind of spoilers. So, yeah, uh, it's interesting. Like how 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 should studios combat spoilers? Like how like especially in this international marketplace where the movie comes out a week, week and a half early or two weeks early, you know, internationally, how can how can a site like Slash Film stay relevant and, you know, get that coveted Google traffic from, you know, talking about the end credit scene and providing an outlet for people to, you know, discuss it and stuff like that while not publishing that article until the day it gets released in the U.S. Do you guys have any thoughts? Chris, anything? I mean, I feel like we're getting back into like the spoiler thing again, conversation again, but I don't know. I, I, feel, I feel like no matter how careful you are, no matter how no matter like what pains you go to to avoid outward spoilers, there's always going to be one thing that someone somewhere is going to consider a spoiler. So I feel like no matter how you're, you're like damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, like no matter how hard you try, there's always going to be that one thing that one person is like, Oh, what the hell? This is a spoiler. And you're just going to throw your hands up and say, I give up. I don't know what you want. Yeah. And I mean, maybe that's the answer. Maybe the answer is just go ahead and everyone publish these, you know, uh, what happens after the credits of Thor Ragnarok things like as soon as the embargo lifts and then re, you know, bump them to the top of the page on the day that the movie opens wide and just mark it, you know, clearly and say uh, for the people who, hey, we know you guys aren't going to be able to see this until for two weeks or whatever, but just in case or for international audiences or if you come to it late or whatever here it is and we're you know we're putting it out there kind of thing because it seems like uh i mean yeah if, if andy wire is doing it now then w- w- that seems like a a big step in the direction of well now the wall is coming down and everyone's just going to do it I, I i will end this conversation with uh, a story of my own from guardians of the galaxy volume two i was at the junket for that and uh, spoilers for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, if you haven't seen it coming up. Uh, but 
uh, in one of the end credit sequences, they show uh, Adam Warlock's cocoon. Um, and in my interview with James Gunn, which I was planning on uh, publishing, you know, after the movie came out, I, I part of it, I do a spoiler discussion. I asked him about that scene and he admitted to me that um, the Adam Warlock was actually originally in this movie in Guardians of Galaxy Volume 2. And uh, he was originally one of the main characters in it. But they decided to, you know, instead put it to this after credit scene. And uh, he said that he will be in the next Guardians. Um, so with this information, I go back to, you know, the hospitality suite at this press room. I'm talking to the entire Slash Film st- staff in our Slack channel. I'm like, how do we deal with this? Because this is an after credit scene. But I've just been given a major scoop by the director of the film who, you know, didn't hide it from me, didn't try to like, you know, he was like, listen, this is what happened. You know, this is going to be an interview that you're going to publish probably before the film comes out to publicize the film. So we decided to publish it without any mention of the after credit scene to basically give his story of how uh, Adam Warlock was originally one of the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy in this movie. And that he will appear in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 without mention that he appears in an after credit scene. And that's how we tried to uh, handle it. And even then we got uh, a lot of people were upset after the fact. After they saw Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and saw that after credit scene, they were upset that we mentioned anything about Adam Warlock. Um, well, uh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, it, it's ridiculous. We try, we try to... <laughs> We, we we spend so much time trying to protect spoilers and tr- trying to figure out how to deal with spoilers. And I just want you guys, the, the listeners and the readers, to know that we that we do put a lot of effort and we are trying to be considerate and we're trying to, you know, keep everything below the jump and with warnings and, you know, trying not to spoil your experience. But even, even us, even us get accused of uh, ruining things. So... <laughs> um, it, it's weird too because it's, we never said Adam Warlock appears anywhere in this movie or in that movie and still I don't think anybody that read it thought we you know oh they're not saying it but he's in this movie right but then when they see that scene they're like oh it would have been so much better if I if they never told us that he was going to be in the next one <laughs> which at like, that point it's like you know he's going to be in the next one because he just got teased in an after credits scene <laughs> yeah so it's it's almost like spoiler con- by you know spoiler confirmation bias almost <laughs> um but yeah okay we've reached the the end of this podcast chris where can we find more of your work online uh, i'm at slashfilm.com and i'm on twitter at c evangelist of 413 ben where can we find you i am also at slash film you can find me on twitter at ben pears I'm on Slashfilm. All the stories published today or on this podcast are published on Slashfilm.com. Uh, if you want to have a question to send to the mailbag, send them to Peter at Slashfilm.com. You can also find me at Slashfilm on Twitter. Uh, you, you can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. We also do a post every day on Slashfilm. If you want to discuss uh, the podcast, you can do so in the comments there. Please go to iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review. That helps us out quite a bit. Go to social media, Facebook, Twitter, tell your friends about us. That helps us out so much. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We appreciate it. And uh, don't spoil Thor for, for, for your friends, please. 
At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.